The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Katie Allen. According to translations of Mayan prophecies, 2012 could mark either the end of the world or a brand new era. Predicting the future is never easy at the best of times, but on this week's podcast, we'll be reading the economic runes. Our experts will tell you, if not exactly what's going to happen, then at least which financial indicators we should be watching this year. We'll look at the prospects for Europe and the Euro, for the high street, and for Britain's economy and the stock market. Joining me in the studio, Guardian Economics Editor, Larry Elliott, our banking expert, Jill Trina, and financial editor and columnist, Nils Prattley. A warm welcome to you all. We signed off before Christmas on this podcast a little fearful of what economic news 2012 might bring us. The day after Boxing Day, The Guardian ran an editorial with the headline, The Euro. Happy New Year, fat chance. A few days later, unemployment reached record levels in the Eurozone. This week, the Fitch Ratings Agency announced it will give its verdict on a number of struggling countries, including Italy, by the end of the month. Meanwhile, Angela Merkel has predicted that 2012 will be more difficult for Europe than 2011. Larry Elliott, are we picking up where we left off at the end of last year then, or has the Christmas break given enough pause for thought among policymakers? It's pretty much where we were, I think. The same old problems are arising. Greece, Italy, Spain, they're all back on the agenda for the, for the Europeans. Um, I suppose the one good thing is that 2012 can hardly be worse than people are expecting. People's expectations for it are so low that any surprise, I suspect, would be on the upside rather than the downside because everybody's imagining that things are going to be incredibly grim. Do you think they're too low? It could be. I mean, I think that the first six months of the year is going to be crucial. I think if they can stumble through until the summer, keep Greece on the life support machine until then and and stave off the problems of Italy and Spain and Portugal, then they might be, you know, in the clear. But I think there's quite a lot of... of, uh, months to get through before that that happens there's quite a lot of uh, bonds bonds a lot of ifs and buts lots of bonds to be sold and i think that it's very very you know premature to say that the crisis is going to end in a, in a in a happy way i mean that's what people assumed this time last year and actually the crisis got a lot worse so it's i mean as, as things stand um i'd say the expectations are much much lower than they were this time last year probably realistically so but there is there is a possibility that things will turn out better than people imagine and nils prattley Larry mentioned there Italy and um, bond sales. Italy has to repay or roll over about 28 billion euros at the beginning of February. Do you think it's on course to do that? Will that be enough? Well, it's on course to do it. The price is the, the price at which it does it is the, is the critical thing. Italian bond yields, 10-year, 10-year yields are about 7%. They can, Italy can clearly afford to pay that for a little while. But the problem is, you know, the longer you kind of pay those rates, the more you're embedding a long-term problem. And I forget the number, but they've got to roll over something like two or 300 billion uh, euros this year. And if you are constantly paying, you know, 7% to raise 10-year money, you know, people will start to worry. And you, you may end up paying 8%, 9% after too long. So a worrying outlook for Italy. And of course, we've got um, Greece is very much in focus still. And um, Jill Trina, I know you've written about this. Um, where are we now on the Greek bailout? And do you think the smart money is still on a Greek exit from the euro? 
I think the story about the exit from the euro is one that is still to play out, so I'm dodging that question as much as possible. I mean, the reality the, the reality is right now a lot of it depends on the level at which the, this default is set. I mean, the, the rumours still abound that 50%, which was agreed at the end of last year, isn't enough. But a lot of bankers still seem to be wedded to 50%. And I, I noticed that there have been statements from official sources in the last few hours talking about the fact that it is still at 50%. So setting that default rate at the right level is clearly what matters for the sort of short term. And, of course, the long term, as, as Larry says, we can't keep fighting through this all the time. And Larry, as we look across um, 2012, what sort of indicators do you think we should be watching? Is it Italian bond yields? And what else are Euro watchers obsessing about? What will you be watching? I think I'm looking for what's happening to budget deficits in those countries because what worries me is that the massive austerity programmes, generalised austerity programmes, are not actually bringing down budget deficits. What's happening is that countries have got big problems with their public finances and they're taking these measures which are sucking demand out of their economies and they're ending up with problems which are as big, if not bigger, than they were before. So I think the two things... things you really need to look at are what's happened to growth in these countries and what's happening to their budget deficits. Because if growth remains low and budget deficits remain high, then the markets are going to start to freak out because that's, that, that, that is going to be an issue. I mean, the only point in having these austerity programmes is if you get budget deficits down and then you can get bond yields down and actually get borrowing costs much lower and, and, re, and restart growth. If that, if, if that doesn't happen, and I don't think it will happen, then the problem is going to, be, it's going to, it's going to remain with us. Yeah, and there has to be a danger that the eurozone goes back into recession, right? I mean, that's what people are. That seems to be what the markets oh, have raised for. I, th- right? I think that's baked in the cake. Right. I mean, a recession is already baked in the cake. It's a question of how bad the recession is. I mean, the German GDP is already looks like it's already falling, and Germany is the strongest economy in the eurozone by far. So, I think it's a really a question of whether we see the, the mild recession which people are hoping for, you know, fall of perhaps half one percent in euro GDP this year, or whether it's something a lot nastier than that. That's that's really what's the issue now. It's not a question of whether the euro is going to avoid a recession. It is not going to avoid a recession. And obviously recession and austerity and whether austerity is working is still very much in focus in the UK. And if we turn back to the UK now, Larry, your Guardian column this week conjured up some slightly disturbing images, if I may say so, of um, pain-obsessed former public schoolboys who are now in government who relish austerity in an almost erotic way. Um, if that's what turns them on, are we in for more cuts and higher unemployment and will any, any of it work at all? Well, the point about my column was that this has traditionally been the, been the UK way and you know, at the whole language of UK policymaking is steeped in, in the sort of dominatrix argot. So we talk about, the, we used to talk about the corset as a way of uh, a measure of, of, of restricting credit control. We talk about fiscal discipline with a certain amount of sort of relish. Um, and it's all about the tightness of economic policy. And so there's a sort of quite sort of erotic sort of uh, S&M substructure to our, to, our, to our language of economics. But I think the, what the point about my column was that that seems to have shifted across the channel and the Europeans seem to also be heavily into the uh, into the whole Miss Whiplash uh, uh, style, of, style of governance, I mean, particularly a country like Spain where the, the government has come in and, and has started to impose massive amounts of austerity seemingly with, with a great deal of, uh, of excitement about doing it. Um, and so, I mean, I just think this is utterly self-defeating. I mean, I think what's, what, what the, the point about this is the, 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 in the UK, it never really worked. And I don't think it's going to work in the Eurozone either. But there is a sort of, you know, the, the, if you look at the language that the Europeans are using now, it's all about fiscal discipline. It's all about punishment. It's all about, you know, taking taking countries to task for failing to um, cut their budget deficits when the, when the actual policies which are being used are going to make those deficits higher. It's the problem that the people in power aren't the ones who feel the pain. 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, obviously, the people who are running the countries are not the people who are losing their jobs and their homes and their businesses. So, but there is, there is. I mean, that 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 is a real issue. I think it's going to be an issue in. It's obviously been an issue in Greece where they've had massive street protests. Problem in Italy. It's going to be a problem in Spain too. I think. Do you think? I suppose if an election. If we were near an election, would it make people difference? Because then, of course, politicians can lose their jobs if they lose their seats. Yeah, you tend to politicians tend to ease up as elections get nearer. I mean, you know, that's that's always been the true of the UK, where what governments try to do is get all the pain out of the way in years one and two of a parliament um, and align the electoral and economic cycles so that you get if by the time the election comes round you're easing policy cutting taxes raising spending and you hope that people will have forgotten all the all the all the beatings you gave them early on in the parliament and um you know that's what went wrong for labor last time that by the end of the parliament britain was deep in recession and what the government is trying to do now is actually make sure that the pain is out of the way by the time the 2015 election comes round. as things stand that's not going to happen I mean, one of the interesting things here, I mean, it's not on the on this point, is that you know the, the argument you're hearing from business, which is, you know, business by and large is sort of fully signed up to the austerity program. But you also hear a lot of chief executives in public and behind the scenes talking about, you know, this is the moment to step up for the government to step up infrastructure spending because it's the one part of the economy that could could be invigorated quite quickly. Uh, and uh, you know, we've got these low bond yields; it's cheap for the government to borrow. Uh, so I suspect one of the kind of you know interesting things here will be whether the sort of government which is at the moment seems sort of dazzled by the fact that bond yields are so low and can't quite believe it's luck actually sort of tries to exploit these bond yields and uh, raise some money and spend and spend some money on infrastructure do you think the high speed rail announcement's useful or is it too long term to well i think that is quite i mean i think what business leaders are more talking about is sort of you know um you know smaller stuff not quite such a sort Concord of, on rails. Yeah, I mean, not just a sort of 33 billion being spent over, mm, but, but over two decades. And yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there was a modest step that Osborne took in the last, uh, in, in the uh, autumn statement, but I think most, most business leaders regard it as kind of, you know, they, he could easily have gone done four times as much. There is an opportunity in the budget for Osborne to say, look, our bond yields are much, much lower than yeah. I thought they were, even at the time of the autumn statement. Therefore, I'm just going to recycle those savings I'm making by paying less on our debt straight back into infrastructure spending. I mean, if I, if I was a Treasury advisor or a special advisor, Osborne, I'd be saying, you know, there might be a billion pounds here in lower debt interest charges, which you can just pay back into the economy and and te- and then and then you would be, be able to have quite a strong political message which is that austerity is paying off austerity yeah. has paid off in the sense that you know we're paying less to borrow money therefore and we can we, we're getting a dividend from it in terms of higher capital spending so that would be that would be quite a good narrative mm, for, for and invest well. and then hopefully yeah. create jobs as well yeah. i mean one of the things that the government really wants to happen is is private companies to just invest a lot more themselves jill and at the moment we're seeing more signs that businesses are hoarding cash. Do you expect that to change in 2012? The most recent credit condition survey from the Bank of England appeared to suggest that no, there was little chance of that changing. But I think you can see evidence that companies, at least big companies, are trying to do something with their cash. I mean, every every night, if you look at the official regulatory newsfeed coming out of the stock exchange, you can see companies are so stumped with what to do with their cash. They're buying back their shares. So there's clearly a lot of cash out there that big companies have got that could potentially be used for something else. If the government could somehow come up with some great policy reason that, you know, they had to use it to 
invest in something rather than buy back their shares. I have no idea. I'm creating policy on the hoof here and I have no idea what that means in practice. Yeah, it doesn't but, create many jobs, is it? Well, buying back shares. No, but yeah. buying back shares creates nothing, in fact. Yeah. And the, I mean, I suppose it helps our, it potentially invents, it, it, uh, helps our um, pension schemes, but uh, it also potentially helps push up share prices, which in turn helps directors' bonuses. But I don't really want to go down that route right now. But I mean, there's clearly a lot of people sitting on, uh, sitting on cash. And also, crucially, the Bank of England's most recent data does appear to show that, in fact, businesses are actually reluctant to borrow. You know, there's been a long debate about, is it that banks don't want to lend or that companies don't want to borrow? And the most recent credit condition survey, at least in some areas, started to show that maybe, in fact, businesses are sitting on their hands. The blame is shared. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, 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 it's a very difficult scenario, but it, it also has to be said that banks clearly, if they wanted to lend and really wanted to lend, then clearly they could be out there cutting interest rates to such a point on loans where companies did want to borrow. And clearly that can't be happening, otherwise it would be happening. But in the near time, more sitting on hands, you think? I think in the short term, but I, I also think that if the Eurozone crisis can somehow start to become less of a crisis and more of a sort of, you know... It becomes the new reality. Becomes the new reality. Yeah. Thank you for helping out there. It, it, is that actually there is the potential for things to turn around and for companies to suddenly realise that they don't have to be sitting on their hands and that they can't be doing something. It needs a sort of, it just needs a sort of gentle sentiment boost. Needs, and there's they, a lot they, of money they, out they need there. more confidence to invest. They are, have yeah. got a lot. A lot of big companies have got plenty of money, cash in the bank, but they're not going to start investing large amounts of money unless they see the economy picking up. I mean, most of them have got ample capacity to deal with the levels of demands they currently exist. And so they, they really require some sign that the economy is on the mend and that the euro crisis is, if not over, it's going to become a chronic problem rather than a critical problem. If those two things were to happen this year, then I think you could start to see investment picking up. And that tends to be the swing factor in in GDP, I mean, consumer spending stays pretty. Uh, it moves in fairly sort of small cycles, but investment does pick up and down, go up and down quite quite markedly. So, you know, that could be that that could be a dominant factor. Um, it, but it requires all these other things to, to 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 go right. I was going to ask you, Larry, what sort of messages do you think those businesses need to hear then from from politics? I mean, this week we've heard Ed Miliband laying out his vision for fairer capitalism, and David Cameron's been talking about crony capitalism. Uh, are either of those things helpful and will they make any difference to struggling people who've lost their jobs? Well, struggling well, clear, clearly both Miliband and Cameron have been listening to the reports from focus groups and it's not surprising that ordinary people are quite unhappy about the state of their lives. If you look at what happened last year, prices went up by 5%, wages went up by 2%, people's real living standards fell by 3 percentage points. And that is a big fall by historic standards. It's not been seen since the early 1980s. And at the same time, people at the top continue to get very, very big pay increases, seen as being rewarded for failure. And it has, I'm sure, had a, a real political effect that people are very, very unhappy about what's going on. I don't think... Actually, the, the, the great British public minds too much if people are earning loads of money, provided their salaries are going up, provided their living standards are going up. But when their living standards are going down and the people at the top seem to be getting richer and richer, then that is a political problem. And that is why both Cameron and Miliband are trying to tap into this vein of, of discontent. Uh, whether it will lead to any great policy initiatives remains to be seen. At the moment, it's very much 
in the realms of rhetoric rather than hard policy. You know, the, the idea of enfranchising shareholders to clamp down on top people. I've heard that so many times. I mean, I've been a financial journalist for quite a long time, and I've heard this come round and round on the carousels so many times, and absolutely diddly squat has been done about it. So you know, I'm not holding my breath for, for there to be some massive shareholder revolt against top people's pay. And, and I'd be very interested to see... Um, See, see how this plays out because at the other, the other end of the spectrum you've got people campaigning for a, um, in a reduction in the 50% tax ban which I think is completely off the agenda politically this year I mean the, the idea that the government would even contemplating contemplate cutting the 50% tax bracket in, in the current environment seems to me to be political suicide but you know we, we shall see I mean it, it, at the moment we're not really seeing any fleshing out of these ideas they are just attempts to play to an audience I think I think he's uh Cameron's um, playing, playing with fire a little bit in taking on executive pay because he's clearly, as Larry says, the focus groups are all reporting that um, people are angry about it and rightly angry about it. But they, uh, it's very, it's rather harder to see what they can do in effective terms because they are entrusting a sort of shareholder group that is, um, uh, despite sort of lots of brave words and of intent over the past decade, has really sort of not fail, has sort of failed to step up to the mark. And all this has been done right in full sight of the shareholders i think it's uh, it's bizarre to think that giving them a binding vote will uh, will, will actually uh, cause executive pay excesses to disappear i think you know at the margin they may introduce a sort of spirit of kind of more responsibility in boardrooms or restraint but i think what what boardrooms regard as restraint is not what the uh, the average voter mm-hmm. voter regards as restraint and then part of the problem clearly is is that what are and who are shareholders you know the, the shareholder register for a FTSE 100 company isn't as straightforward as it was you know the it's not the, my grandma is it holding shares in boots or well well like the, the, the reality be. is it used to be straightforward it used to be you know the big names like Prue and right. Fidelity and all those names could kind of say oh you know we own half of this company so do as you're said shareholders, that pattern's changed as but well. it's changed enormously so you've now got hedge funds on the register you've got big US pension funds are now investing UK companies so it's not as straightforward for this government to try and galvanize shareholders even if they were there to be galvanized and you know, it was the Labour government that introduced this current voting system on remuneration reports, i.e. you can vote on this. The company doesn't really have to do anything about it, but you can at least slap their wrists. The reality is, since they were given that power in 2003, only 18, 18 remuneration reports have actually been defeated by shareholders. And the reality is, what impact has that had? Well, you know, the directors still get their pay deals and such like. Every now and again, the company's promised to do better next year. And what's happened to that period to directors' pay... It's gone up. Yeah, I was looking on the uh, one of the main shareholder lobby groups, the Association of British Insurers. I was looking on their website the other day for something and stumbled on something I thought I was looking for, but it was about um, holding boards accountable for pay- payments of failure. And I thought, and, uh, and then I looked at the date on this. It was December December 2001, you know, saying that we will so hold, like Larry hold says, boards accountable. Around I think, again you know, as Jules says, 18, only mere 18 reports voted against and I would I suspect number of chairman of REM committees voted off I would guess no, zero I would imagine I mean you know the point is there are to be fair to the to the investment community we're digressing probably a little but to be fair to them there are some of them who are making the right noises you know there are some out there in the community who are trying desperately to say that they're going to take action but you know you might own five percent of the FTSE 100 it's not enough so, I mean, one thing we talked about there, Larry, was these consumers out there. Generally, your general household is feeling the pinch. Their pay is not going up, but inflation is. And that has repercussions for the high street. And, Nils, I was going to ask you, January is a big month for the high street, but already we've had a slew of profit warnings even before Christmas. 
Do you think this will be another year where we lose more chains and high-profile names, you know, the likes of Woolworths and Borders that we've seen go in the past? Uh, probably will. I think the sort of the broad uh, message from the Christmas trading statement so far is that the the strong have gone sideways and the weak have gone gone backwards at various various rates. I mean, I th- Sainsbury's was talking this morning. They they sort of deemed to have a, had a good Christmas, but. Bottom line, people bought bought less stuff in in Sainsbury's on a like for like basis. You know, the, 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 you know that's that's deemed a good result these days for uh, for retailers. As long as they contain that fall, I think for big retailers it will be about trimming costs, supply chain management in the kind of jargon, not really opening new stores, just eking out a few cost savings here and there. And at the bottom end of things, the sort of the game groups or the H and Vs in the world, it's a sort of you know it's a desperate desperate struggle to to, you know, to stay in business. I think. As it happens, I think HMV will be around for next Christmas because the, the, the banks have given them the leeway to do that. But I think there will be casualties. You've seen Lucenza go into administration already and inevitably there will be others. Consumers are being very, very cautious. I mean, that's the thing. Retailers, have, they've got retailers by the short and curlies, really, because they just sit there on their, and, and refuse to, to, to spend any money. And then eventually retailers, all their profit margins are being shot to pieces, are forced to cut prices. And that's the problem. For, you know, unless you're a really well-capitalised retail group, that's got very deep pockets and can afford to actually go out there and and get involved in a price war, you are going to be in big trouble this year because consumers are not going to be spending large amounts yeah. of cash. I think one thing that one pattern that is emerging is that consumers do uh, spend around kind of events as uh, so retailers call it like so Christmas and mm. there's sort of you know to some extent they're lucky that there's quite a lot of events this year. There's the there's the European football. There's the the uh, the jubilee and the and the olympics so there will be a sort of long long hot summer of uh, hopefully of uh, uh, drinking and barbecues do you think that the olympics will will do anything for the economy larry from a sort of macroeconomic point of view if we get a bumper haul of gold medals I'm not sure that's going to happen will it will it bring back some sort of feel good factor and the tourist pound will that help uh, i doubt it. I mean, I think we probably had the best of the Olympics effects already. I mean, the, the big impact is probably on the construction side, and that's already winding down because the stadia are already, you know, all the facilities are pretty much ready now. I mean, the, there will be more tourists coming to the UK, but there's almost certain to be a sort of exodus of people who just can't bear the prospects of Britain grinding into a halt in late July, early August. They'll be heading off for the uh, heading off for Greece where the, where the euro is, is going to be weak and they're going to get more for their money. So, I mean, I think that, that swings and roundabouts. I mean, I don't think there's very much hard evidence that sporting success leads to a feel-good factor. I mean, the, the last great sporting success Britain had was winning the World Cup in 1966, which coincided with the sterling crisis and a deflationary period leading up to a devaluation a year later. So the historical precedent is not that convincing I don't think I mean it always assumes that we are going to win a slew of gold medals which I suppose would be is tempting fate anyway but um, we did win the ashes a couple of times Larry (laughs) we did win the ashes a couple of times but I'm not sure that really qualifies as a great (laughs) international sporting event but I I mean (laughs) and to the point about the tourist pound the Tourist authorities have already admitted the bookings are down for the summer, actually. So unless you're coming to the Olympics, you're, not, you're really not going to come, at least to London, for that sort of fortnight You'll be period. avoiding it, you think, because of the Yeah, and, and also, we, we also know that the authorities are telling the banks, for instance, which populate Canary Wharf and all those areas around that area, to make sure that there's nobody at their desks during that period, so that all the people trying to get to the Olympics can get there. So I'm not quite sure what's going to happen during that fortnight. You know, we know that the high street banks are bringing forward their results, probably, so they can avoid it all, so... 
don't know, could be a period of extraordinary quiet. Ma- mainly economic effect in my neck of the woods, which is Hackney, is that the people renting out their houses to um, <laughs> people coming to the Olympics and uh, departing the country for a couple of weeks. So all very much London-focused, if, yeah, there, if there is any benefit. Indeed. Well, we can't let you all go without some New Year's predictions, of course. And um, if each of you were sitting on a fat investment fund, where would you be looking for value? Is there anywhere this year? I'd, I'd be looking. I'd be looking at America. I think because I think of the, it's it's of, in the in the in the beauty contest of the ugly. America has the fewest warts. I would be. Uh, I would be um, trying to uh, keep my cash pile well stocked because there may be. Come on, Nils. Uh, Come on. Hold on. I'm going to get braver in a minute. There will be. I keep because there could be very good opportunities come along later in the year. Because I mean, clearly things could go disastrously wrong, and share prices could fall quite a long way. In which case, you'd want to have some cash. You don't want to place all your cards on all your, all your chips at the beginning. Uh, the one area I think I would look at is. Uh, continental european shares on the principle that we talked about earlier that there's awful lot of bad news being assumed and uh, some of the evaluations of these quite well capitalized uh, large cap european companies you know they do look pretty cheap on a historical basis jill can i pester you i think my colleagues have given fabulous answers already okay well that's all we have time for this week leave your thoughts on the year ahead on our blog my thanks to jill trina larry elliott and nils prattley The producer was Phil Maynard. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.